the snare drum, the hi-hat, the hand clap, the kick drum. That was the Oberheim DMX drum machine. And this is Discord and Rhyme. <laughs> Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums, song by song, including every available 12-inch remix. Roll call, John McFerrin, Rich Bennell, Mike DeFabio, and now it's time to turn it over to this week's host, Rich. What album do you have for us, Rich, and why did you pick it? Well, first off, I just want to say how honored I am to be hosting Discord and Rhyme's 88th episode. What did I tell you? Wow. <laughs> and in recognition of the great Dr. Emmett Brown's achievement in time travel, today we will be going back to a band that helped take music into the future with the 1987 uh. album Substance by Manchester, England's venerable dance rock quartet, New Order. So Substance is kind of a milestone for our podcast because this is Discord and Rhyme's first singles collection. Ooh. I went for Substance instead of one of New Order's proper albums because while it's technically a compilation, it's also kind of a standalone album because nine out of the 12 tracks don't appear on any New Order studio release. And when you lay the tracks back to back, they chart out a pretty amazing history of New Order leading a revolution in electronic dance music. So Rich, why don't you tell us about your personal history with New Order? So I actually don't remember the exact moment I became a New Order fan, because uh, when you're like me and a fan of pretty much anything with a synthesizer and a prominent kick drum, it's basically written in stone that you're eventually going to get into New Order. But the first time I remember hearing about them was when I was in my teens, and I listened to a really short-lived Silicon Valley radio station called 104.9 Music for the Rest of Us, and they regularly played Blue Monday, Bizarre Love Triangle, and True Faith, all three of which will be discussing in this episode. And they also had a station ID that used the band's 1989 rave anthem, Fine Time, as backing music. And all of these songs made it clear that I had to hear more from this band. Yeah. 
But the only other thing I have to add about my own relationship with New Order is that, well, as you may be aware, they grew out of the foundational revolutionary post-punk band Joy Division after the death of singer Ian Curtis. And so for a long time, I treated the two bands as kind of a dichotomy, like Joy Division played boring, depressing dirge music and New Order played fun dance music. But what I've come to realize over the years, and especially getting ready for this episode, is that Joy Division was a great band and that the shift to New Order just they were, it wasn't a stylistic clean break at all. And as we'll hear in this episode, even as New Order found their own voice and turned more and more toward dance music, elements of the Joy Division sound remain present in their music. But I'll get into more detail about that once we start discussing the album proper. Mike, what about you? Well, you know, in a lot of ways, I am uh, sort of Rich's shadow counterpart on this podcast. <laughs> and uh, so I had like my dark link from Zelda. Yes, exactly like that. And uh, if there's if there's anything I love more than rolling coal, it's boring, depressing dirge music. Fun? No, thanks. I'm going to stay here in my chiaroscuro gargoyle realm. <laughs> so I, I got really into Joy Division and really had to be dragged kicking and screaming into getting into New Order. And I I liked I started with substance because that seemed like the most reasonable place to start. And I always liked the stuff at the beginning. Of course I did, because it was the, the darkest and it sounded the most like Joy Division. And then after after Blue Monday, it started to get just a little a little too happy for me, a little too perky. And uh, I really had to learn to like that stuff. But uh, I still don't love every song on this compilation, as you will hear. But um, yeah, I'm pretty sure I can guess which ones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh you know, New Order are a frustrating band and any compilation that charts their career is going to be frustrating in some way. So it's it's an accurate representation of the band for for better or worse. So as for me, uh, New Order is a band that I was actually kind of surprised that I ended up liking as much as I did. Um, so I, I first became acquainted with Joy Division, as one often does uh, in my college years. You know, I had lots of people recommending them to me all the time. And what I found early on was that I liked both of the proper studio albums that they did on the whole. I liked them quite a bit, but I didn't like Joy Division as a whole nearly as much as many, many of the people that I talked to. But over time, what I realized was that like 90 percent of any objections or hemming and hawing I did about the band had to do with Ian Curtis. And so when I realized, well, wait a minute, you know, if, if you think in a certain sense that, uh, you know, if, if you treat Joy Division, it's kind of like their their teenage band, their early 20s band. I'm real. Maybe it would be worthwhile to, to give a listen to some of the things that the other three did uh, thereafter, especially since they just stayed together and and kept making music. Uh, and so sometime in my mid 20s, I I said, OK, well, people seem to to recommend uh, the substance compilation. I'll, I'll go check this out. And I was really shocked again at how much I enjoyed this right away. Th this isn't music that I know every nook and cranny of, even after having listened to and enjoyed it uh, for, for many years. But it's one that I just taken as a whole, just in, in terms of how colorful it is. And uh, how much energy it often has is something that I've been really, really taken with over the years. And um, I'm really glad we're talking about this one as well, because there's there's none of their proper studio albums that I like really 
anywhere near as much as I like this compilation, but largely on the strength of this compilation, I, I really, really admire and enjoy this band. So, Rich, what can you tell us about the history of New Order? All right. Take it away, Peter Hook. So Substance presents an interesting situation when it comes to discussing the history of New Order because the collection effectively serves as a history of the band in its own right, spanning the years 1981 to 1987, which was the band's most creatively fruitful period. So I'll let those songs speak for themselves when we get to them. But for now, I'm going to turn the clock back a few years and discuss where New Order came from, which, as we said before, was Joy Division. So before I start, I have a quick content warning. The subject of suicide is pivotal to how Joy Division became New Order. So if that's an upsetting subject for you, skip forward about 10 minutes. That said, like so many great British bands of the late 70s, the history of Joy Division started at a Sex Pistols show. Founding members Bernard Sumner and Peter Hook met at the legendary Sex Pistols show on June 4th, 1976 at Lesser Free Trade Hall in Manchester, England, and then formed a band called the Stiff Little Kittens. After placing an ad, they recruited vocalist Ian Curtis and drummer Steve Brotherdale and renamed the band Warsaw after the track Varshava from David Bowie's album Low. And a song they wrote during this era called Warsaw would actually later show up on their 1978 debut EP, An Ideal for Living. Three, five, oh, one, two, five, go! I was there in the backstage when this light came around Brotherdale left the band in 1977, and they then recruited drummer Stephen Morris, completing the band's classic lineup. 
After learning that there was already a punk band called Warsaw Pact, they changed the name to Joy Division, which is a reference to the slang term used for the forced prostitution units in Nazi concentration camps, taken from Carol Satinsky's World War II novel, The House of Dolls. And yeah, but remember these guys were in their 20s at the time. Still a better name than Stiff Little Kittens. Yeah, that's true. Definitely. (laughs) So Joy Division began to gain a reputation for their live performances around this time and attracted the attention of several major figures in the New Order story. This included Rob Breton, who became the band's manager, as well as local Manchester media impresario Tony Wilson, host of the TV music show So It Goes and founder of Factory Records, who went on to sign the band. According to Wilson, watching the band perform, in particular Ian Curtis's presence on stage, quote, was like seeing an alien with tentacles and eight eyes, end quote. And if you want to know more about Tony Wilson and the whole Factory Records scene, I highly recommend Grant G's 2007 documentary Joy Division, as well as Michael Winterbottom's very entertaining 2002 pseudo-mockumentary 24-hour party people, which stars Steve Coogan as Tony Wilson. That's, yeah, highly recommend that. And what do you do? How do you mean? You know, your job here. Well, I'm, I'm Tony Wilson. After signing to Factory, the band teamed up with producer Martin Hannett and recorded their 1979 debut album, Unknown Pleasures, whose classic cover you have undoubtedly seen on many a t-shirt and dorm room wall. Confusion and arises, says it all. She's lost control. And she's clinging to the nearest passerby. She's lost control. And she gave away the secrets of her past and said, I lost control again. Unknown Pleasures was a huge critical success and raised the band's profile, but just as the band was reaching this new threshold of fame, things started to get really tough for Ian Curtis. He was diagnosed with grand mal epilepsy, which severely restricted the way he could live his life. He was unable to drive a car or even stand too close to the train tracks while taking transit, at risk of having a seizure and falling in. He famously incorporated his condition into his dance moves while he performed on stage, but sometimes it wasn't an act, and he repeatedly had to be taken off stage as his seizures worsened. His marriage to his wife, Deborah, was also falling apart around this time, and ultimately, on May 18th, 1980, just two days before Joy Division was scheduled to depart on its first U.S. tour, Ian Curtis took his own life. At the time of Ian Curtis's passing, Joy Division had already recorded its sophomore album, Closer, which was released posthumously in July 1980, as well as the non-album single, Love Will Tear Us Apart, which has gone on to become Joy Division's signature song and one of the definitive singles from the post-punk era. According to Peter Hook, after their friend's death, quote, we never confronted the grief. No one around seemed to know what to do or say, end quote. So the remaining three members of Joy Division went back into the studio and they did the only thing they could. They started playing, jamming, and writing songs again. And that's where the story of Joy Division becomes the story of New Order. So let's get started. Okay, so before we get started on substance, we'd like to say thank you to our newest Patreon sponsor, Jim. Thanks, Jim. And all the rest of you on Patreon who help us keep Discord and Rhyme ad-free. 
Go check out patreon.com slash discord pod and see what we have to offer, including many exclusive bonus episodes and the opportunity to have us plug one of your own projects right here in this space. Also, if you want to buy any of the albums we've talked about, you can do that through the Amazon affiliate links on our website, discordpod.com. We get a small commission from anything you happen to buy on that visit at no additional cost to you. While you're on the website, you can read the complete show notes for each episode, including links to our sources, extra information or clarifications, and Spotify playlists of all of the songs featured in the episode. You can also say hi to us on Twitter at DiscordPod or email DiscordPod at gmail.com. And now, on with the show. Track one is called Ceremony. Here we go. Is everybody in? There was a point in the early 2000s when this was used in so many indie movie trailers. Huh. I feel like it was, yeah. I, 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 it was one of those songs where, like, when I got it, like, I couldn't place where specifically it came from because it was just part of, like, this collective mass of sound that I got used to in pop culture. <laughs> so, as I mentioned earlier, the transition from Joy Division to New Order wasn't a clean break, but more of a gradient. And nowhere is this more evident than when they first started out. And it makes sense. Ian Curtis was a charismatic vocalist and stage presence and was also one of the idea men who would stop during takes and identify interesting bits and ideas. But he didn't play an instrument. He was vocals only. So even without him on the microphone, the trio that remained was, from an instrumental perspective, still Joy Division. Break Them Down, also known as Ceremony, was originally released in March 1981. The version on Substance is actually a re-recording from later that year, after the band had recruited Gillian Gilbert as a second guitarist, and she would be a regular member of the band from that point forward. The song was actually written by Ian Curtis, so this isn't just a transitional song in a symbolic sense, but a literal one. It's effectively both the first New Order single and the final Joy Division single, inhabiting both phases of the band's history. All three remaining band members tried out as vocalist, and Bernard Sumner asked for just one more go and accidentally wiped the other two vocalist tracks. Oops. <laughs> becoming the band's new lead vocalist almost by default. In spite of this, Sumner hadn't yet really stepped up as frontman by this point, and New Order's debut album Movement, released in November 1981, actually features a couple lead vocals by Peter Hook, including the opening track Dreams Never End. Dreams. 
But this song is a good opportunity to talk about New Order as an instrumental unit, since Sumner's vocal melody on this song is mostly an Ian Curtis imitation, and he audibly struggles to keep up with the music. You can barely hear him. So the most celebrated member of the New Order Ensemble is bassist Peter Hook, who would often play his parts on a six-string bass tuned up so high that the strings were in danger of snapping. He originally did this so he could hear his parts over the din of the club noise, but it eventually became a critical part of the New Order sound. And his watery bass parts, played with a heavy chorus effect, filled the space in the arrangement that normally went to a lead guitarist. Bernard Sumner filled the more traditional role of lead guitarist, but since Peter Hook was playing the lead parts, he focused more on playing distorted riffs that washed over the music and textured the empty space. Sort of like Andy Summers from The Police, but not quite. He found it impossible to sing and play guitar at the same time, at least at first, which is part of why the band recruited Gillian Gilbert to help overcome that shortcoming in the ensemble. And she also played keyboards, and I'll talk about her in more detail a little bit later. Finally, on drums, Stephen Morris rarely played a straightforward beat, and according to critic Simon Reynolds, his part, quote, seemed to circle the rim of a crater, end quote. So Joy Division did not sound like a traditional rock ensemble, and a lot of that was Martin Hannett, uh, who was determined to give the band a unique sound. He produced both Ceremony and the Movement album, so his presence here is part of what gives the track a sense of continuity from what came before. Mike, what do you think? Oh, I like this one because it is a a Joy Division song. (laughs) Can't beat that. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, if, if you like Joy Division, which I, I very much do, then, hey, you're going to like Ceremony. But what's interesting to me about it is that it, even though it was written, you know, as a Joy Division song, it also sounds like something beginning. And it kind of makes me think, I've been thinking lately, you know, I've been wondering if maybe if, if Ian Curtis hadn't died and Joy Division just continued, if they wouldn't have gone in the same sort of direction that New Order ended up going in anyway. I've had that same thought, too. Like, uh, like Movement very much strikes me as just the third Joy Division album. And I wonder, like, whether the other New Order albums would have just been, like, the fourth and the fifth Joy Division album and so on. Yeah. One of the big things that I've always thought about with with Closer is that, it, you know, it's it's often held up as like, oh, it's a, as being particularly special because it's it's the final Ian Curtis album. But the other band members didn't know that when they were making right. it. Right. Yeah. Like it's it sounds like a logical progression from Unknown Pleasures. And like what the the three instrumentalists are doing on that album is awesome. setting up for like an interesting direction that they would go in uh later on anyway i don't want to interrupt you no that's fine yeah but closer that's uh could you bring that up because that closer is so often talked about like it's this suicide note album uh and it's you know the songs are interpreted through that kind of lens but it that's not what it was when they were recording it. It was just the new Joy Division album. No, they just had a dark outlook on the world. I mean, like there's a tomb on the cover. <laughs> yeah, that's just yeah. That was just how Joy Division rolled. There's both a continuity here and a sense of uh, artistic growth. I mean, it's in a it's in a major key. <laughs> Joy Division didn't true, do that yeah. much. So so it's it's a sign that they would have gone in a different direction anyway. So for me, um, I really like this one. I like the, I, I like what you said about how it, it sounds simultaneously like a beginning and an ending. And I, I, one thing that I really like about this uh, as a singles compilation is it's still, even though, you know, in, in a certain sense, it's just a bunch of, of, of relevant tracks 
uh, pieced together in chronological order, it still flows like an album. Like the first track on here feels it should be the opener to me. The the one that closes it feels like it should be the closer, or that that closes the part that we're we're talking about anyway. And I I feel like this is a just just a fantastic song. I I love I I really like Peter Hook just his his approach in general. I like I like the the fact that like he's he's the the unda- no doubt about it lead um, for for so much of their career at again. I, I don't necessarily know like how much the others uh, love that or loved him in the process of it, but it works really, really well for the sound that they're putting together. Uh, one thing that that does uh, occur to me is is I'll often see people who will you know if if the topic comes up, what's your favorite New Order song, or even like what's your favorite uh, New Order song on on Substance, and sometimes I'll see people cite Ceremony, which which makes me raise an eyebrow a little bit because on the one hand it's a great song but if but on the other hand if somebody says that ceremony is their favorite new order song that immediately tells me oh you you don't actually really like new order that much <laughs> because it because they, they like it because of the joy division elements and again it's that's fine if, the, if if that's where you lean but because it still has one foot so firmly in in the former world um i th- I think that somebody who's really into the band is probably going to look elsewhere in many cases for, for, for like the top of the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we have nothing left here, let's move on to track two. This is Everything's Gone Green. Ah, here come the synthesizers. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody Help Me, also known as Everything Has Gone Green, was originally released in September 1981. It's an odd track and kind of a strange choice for this set when you consider that the song shared an A-side with an absolute stunner of a song called Procession. Desolation! Desolation. (laughs) Oopsie doopsie. I thought that might happen. Now why would you think that? That was Procession by the Moody Blues. Here's the New Order one. I didn't really know this song until like the last couple of weeks. It's so good. It gets, yeah, it's, it gets kind of unnoticed. 
So Procession was New Order's first single written by the full band and not just Ian Curtis. And it sounds like a natural sonic progression from Ceremony, whereas Everything's Gone Green is an electronic oddity that sounds kind of like a rough draft of the band's later hit single, Blue Monday, which we'll be talking about in a couple of tracks. Procession shows up on the second LP of Substance, which is where they put all of the oddities, B-sides, and remixes, and my headcanon version of the first LP swaps the two tracks. But its inclusion on the first LP makes sense in context, because Substance wasn't exactly intended as a history of the band, but rather it was a quick-fix way to bail out Factory Records, whose financial mismanagement is the stuff of legend. Like, New Order were literally never profitable during the most creatively lucrative period of their career because all of the money they made went right back into factory records and their ill-advised investment into the Manchester club, the Hacienda. So with that in mind, it makes sense that in 1987, the label would want to foreground the dance music that had become New Order's bread and butter and their signature sound by that point. And even if everything's gone green doesn't flow from ceremony the way that Procession does, it represents the first really assertive step the band made into electronic music. Because uh, we just talked about the Closer album by Joy Division, and they were already flirting with drum machines and synthesizers on that album. But I I think this might be the first time they used a sequencer, which, uh, and I'm I'm not 100% sure about that, uh, so so don't quote me on that. It sounds like it. But they apparently cranked up the drum machine on this track so loud that Martin Hannett actually stormed out midway through the sessions, which basically marked the end of an era for the band, because he was very responsible for like how they sounded as Joy Division and just would not go on to define the New Order sound from that point forward. So Everything's Gone Green is more of a curiosity than actually one of my favorite New Order tracks, but it's an interesting pivot point. Oh, see, I love this one. Like, <laughs> I mean, I like it a lot. I just think it's it's just not one of my favorites. No, I, I, and that's fair. Um, I just loved like the just the stark shift where they say like, OK, we, we've got we've had one foot uh, in straddling the two worlds uh, as we needed to have to start this. But they're saying like, this is where you, you, you can immediately just start to get a sense of like this is where their minds are going to go. This is what the future looks like. They don't necessarily you know, they don't know that that this is in many ways a draft for for Blue Monday. Like to them, they're just like, oh, this is this neat little this neat groove that we're putting together. And it, there's just there's just so much life. There's just so much energy. And, you know, that's that that's characteristic of, of much of the rest of the album. But like just this burst of it at this point, like really, really, really takes me every time that I listen to this. So yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of this one. Mike, what about you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like this one. Uh, Tony Wilson actually uh, always maintained that this was New Order's most important song. Because, oh, really? Yeah. I can see because, that. Because this was what led to Temptation and then to Blue Monday after that. Because like this is a this is an acceleration for like this is not a gradual like, like it's a logical next step from what they were doing on Closer. But it's an acceleration. It's not incremental at this it's, point. It's logarithmic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so one uh, thing that happened when so they when New Order went on their big U.S. tour that they were planning on going on with Ian Curtis before uh, like before his death. Uh, one thing that happened was that a, a truck with all of their gear got stolen. And so they and which, you know, which was awful, obviously, but it gave them a chance to just replace it with a bunch of cool electronic toys because, you know, factory records legendarily mismanaged them, but was also willing to just blow a bunch of money on buying them cool new toys. And so (laughs) that was like a big like turning point for them. They were suddenly able to get all these cool, all all this cool electronic equipment. Yeah, that makes sense. And I I used to think of this as just sort of a rough draft for Blue Monday. I mean, it's the vocal melody is almost exactly the same, but uh it's easy to to th- think that because we live in a post Blue Monday world. Yeah. Uh, 
And at the time, I think hearing this must have thrown a bunch, must have thrown a bunch of people for a loop. Yep. Because because nobody would have seen this coming. This this sudden embracing of of sequencers and and all these electronic doodads. So yeah, it's it's really is. Maybe it's not the revolution, but it's the manifesto. I like that. Yeah, I think I think not very many people were paying too close attention to New Order around the movement period because they, they really weren't expecting much from them, I think. Right. Yeah. But the people who so were. So it was kind of a silent revolution. Yeah. All right. If we're done here, let's move on to track three. Ah, temptation. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't say that, I was going to. Yeah. <laughs> Turnaround, also known as Temptation, was released in May 1982, but the version on Substance is actually a 1987 re-recording produced specifically for the collection. This version has pretty much become the canonical version of the song, in part because it appeared on the soundtrack to the 1995 film Train Spotting, which had a legendary soundtrack. But I kind of prefer the original version, which has a little more of that dirt and grime and darkness you often hear on early 80s synth music. Yeah. So there's a lot of Manchester in this song and in New Order's music in general. I'm a firm believer that a band's geographic surroundings always inscribe themselves into the music in some way, and that's definitely true here. Because Manchester isn't just an industrial city, it's the classic industrial city. It was the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution and was the de facto industrial capital of Europe for a very long period. And at the same time, England's cities are surrounded by vast expanses of rural countryside, and the greater Manchester urban area isn't far from the pastoral beauty of nearby Cheshire County. And this duality comes across in New Order's music, which which evokes both the churn of Manchester's industrial heritage, but also kind of the expansive beauty of the city's surrounding landscape. Like, it sounds very mechanical, but there's like a wide open spaces quality to it. It's very sunny. And Temptation comes from around the time New Order released their second album, Power, Corruption, and Lies. And the album's sleeve illustrates this duality really well. 
The front cover is a reproduction of the painting A Basket of Roses by French artist Henri Fantin Latour, and the back of the sleeve is die-cut to look like a floppy disk. And according to Peter Hook, New Order was always kind of a push-pull between his own desire to play in a loud rock band and Bernard Sumner's eagerness to, to experiment with, with fun new electronic toys. And while none of this was explicitly planned out, it was the interplay between these two instincts inspired by their Manchester surroundings that produced the trademark New Order sound. So, Mike, what do you think? Well, you're not going to hear me badmouth the version on substance, but uh, there is an energy to the original. There's actually the they actually recorded a two separate original versions. There was a seven inch version and a 12 inch version that were totally different performances that were kind of designed as different experiences. And both those versions, there's a sense. Well, first of all, it kind of sounds like they're playing in a basement, which gives it kind of a cool feel. And also there's just a kind of a sense of discovery. You know, they're, they're going someplace new. They're experimenting. They're, they're writing this terrific song almost by accident or just, you know, they're just happening upon it. And also the, when the chorus hits on those early versions, Bernard Sumner is double tracked or at least double tracked. And maybe this wasn't intentional. Maybe it's just because he's, he's never been a, a terrific singer, but he, he kind of sounds altogether like a, a bunch of guys singing along in a pub, like in an Edgar Wright movie or something. And that, I really like that effect, partly because it, the chorus is up, down, turn around. You might like New Order more than Joy Division, but that's you got to admit, that's not exactly atrocity exhibition. So, yeah, I, I I'm not going to like slap this version off if I if I hear it come on. But I, I do. I'm I'm a, a firm believer in the superiority of, of the original versions, which I, I think are, are both just fantastic. So mm-hmm. I am something of an amateur here because I don't actually know the original versions. That was the first time I'd, I'd heard uh, one of the earlier versions, so I can't really speak to it. Um, but for the version that I know, I love it. Like I, I, I get, I get that why in a certain sense why it, you know, someone might hear it and say like it's, you know, it's a little too glossy. It's a little too, like there's a difference between um, early '80s production and and the 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 late 80s uh maybe slight overproduction i don't know but there's a there's a peppy energy to this that i don't find obnoxious and like for me that that means something like this is this is a (laughs) song like there aren't many songs that will just instinctually make me happily want to just start doing silly dances in my car like (laughs) i will sing along to songs in the car but i won't dance to a lot of songs this is one that i will um just very very energetically and and very very happily yeah i would think of i think of this as like the true arrival of the new order sound as i think of it that makes sense yeah speaking of which yeah are we at the fireworks factory now i, I think we're at we're, i think we're at the fireworks factory at least one of the fireworks factories yes. there are several fireworks factories on this album that is true fireworks factory one maybe Next track is Blue Monday. Fireworks Factory 73. There you go.
right. As New Order would say in 2001, get ready. I honestly can't tell you what my favorite song of all time is because the answer to that question changes all the time depending on my mood. But if you ask me what the greatest song ever recorded is, like the single track that helped make music sound like what I want music to sound like, my answer without a moment's hesitation would be Blue Monday. Music would simply be a much less interesting place to me without this song. There would be way less spring in my step, way less of a sense of propulsion and purpose to the world. It's somehow both reverent, weaving together a ton of different strands of music history, and irreverent, taking those influences and shoving them into a blender just for the fun of seeing what would come out. New Order didn't know what they had on their hands when they were making this song. They were just mucking around in the studio. But it set a whole new template for electronic dance music. It was lightning in a sequencer. also known as Blue Monday, it was released in March 1983 as a non-album single from Power, Corruption, and Lies. So something I haven't mentioned yet about Substance is that a lot of the versions of the songs on the compilation are remixes that were released as 12-inch singles. And as Mike said about Temptation, sometimes they recorded a whole new version to release as a 12-inch. And the 12-inch single was a format that rose in popularity during the disco era to accommodate longer song lengths and keep people on the dance floor. Blue Monday is the biggest selling 12-inch single of all time, and though it was only a modest hit when it first came out, it gradually grew in popularity over the course of the 80s as it built up steam on the club scene, and by the early 90s, it was at the forefront of the house music explosion. And it was meant as a joke. The members of New Order gradually built Blue Monday while messing around in the studio without any real purpose or direction. They'd acquired an Emulator 1 sampler, and they figured out how to use it by making samples of their own farts. Like Gene Belcher from Bob's Burgers, Eat Your Heart Out. (laughs) I'm going to sample it. (laughs) Their intent with Blue Monday was to make a song that they could put on instead of playing an encore while they went off and got drunk at the bar, which is especially hilarious when you consider that in practice, Blue Monday was incredibly difficult and finicky to perform live because all of those sequencers and synthesizers were very much meant for the studio and not the stage. And if you listen to any like New Order live recording from around this era, that, that was incredibly clear. Like they didn't have like roadies or anything to uh, to actually help them program these things and they, they would often just like perform like a 23 minute version of everything has gone green because they couldn't figure out how to do anything else <laughs> 
So before I hand the floor over to the rest of you, I mentioned that the song is a patchwork of a bunch of different influences, and I have some clips to play because they're really interesting. So the first one is the 1982 club track Dirty Talk by Klein plus MBO, which the band heard at the Hacienda Club, and it served as the inspiration for the song's entire arrangement. And now I'm going to break down a few individual elements of the song. So first we've got the Sine Qua Non of Blue Monday, which is that stuttering drum machine that opens the song. So this is a copy of a very similar drum track from Donna Summer's 1979 disco hit, Our Love. Next, we've got that beautifully sequenced synth bass line. This was directly inspired by another disco hit, which is the 1978 single, You Make Me Feel, open parentheses, Mighty Real, close parentheses, by Sylvester. <laughs> so the answer to how does it feel is apparently Mighty Real. <laughs> Third, we've got Peter Hook's dirgy bass riff. This one was perhaps the most surprising of any of these to me because it's a direct nod to Ennio Morricone's score to the Spaghetti Western for a few dollars more. Yeah, great score, great movie, by the way. And yeah. finally, we've got that choir that shows up right before the lead vocal comes in. And this comes directly from Kraftwerk's song, Uranium. That vocoder sounds like it needs a recola. <laughs> I love when songs give songs that they sampled a reason to exist. I think <laughs> I've talked about this in some episode before, but I don't remember. Because that Crawford track, what you heard of that is the song. It's just this little nothing interlude on the Radioactivity album. And... It's, it's the sort of thing you would wonder, why is that even there? Uh, but yeah, it's there so so New Order could sample it and make Blue Monday as great as it is. I feel that way a lot about a lot of like early Kraftwerk stuff that it seems like a bunch of like, you know, spare parts that people could later use for samples. Yeah. So as you can hear, Blue Monday is a patchwork of bits and pieces inspired or taken wholesale from other songs. And a popular maxim about art is good artists borrow, great artists steal. And I'm going to quote a longer dictum written by T.S. Eliot, which is thought to be the source of this maxim. So Eliot wrote, 
immature poets imitate, mature poets steal, bad poets deface what they take, and good poets make it into something better or at least something different. The Mm. good poet welds his theft into a hole of feeling which is unique, utterly different than that from which it is torn. End quote. And along these lines, Blue Monday is what I would call a transformative use of existing art. And it not only transformed these pieces into a new distinctive composition, it permanently transformed dance music. I love it so much. <laughs> so, you know, I don't listen to you know, dance music with the same frequency that, that Rich does. It's, it's not my instinctual bag in the same way that it is for Rich. But if I am one thing, I am a front runner. I love hearing acts that are just so clearly good at what they do, even if it's not in my my wheelhouse per se. And, you know, what, what I knew New Order's, you know, general reputation. And it's like, well, OK, you, you know, in my 20s, you know, getting this album, I, I'd probably heard this at some point, just didn't know it by name. As I, like, you know, again, like, oh, I liked what they did with, with Joy Division. Let's see where, where this is going. And, you know, I, I still remember that in putting this on, it's like, well, this is definitely not, you know, the typical thing that I'm listening to. It's like, wow, this is amazing. I can't even put into words why I feel like an entire universe has just opened up for me. And, you know, to this day, when I listen to this, like I, I you know, th- there's just something really remarkable to me to, to hear somebody just like saying, like, we found the future. Here it is. <laughs> And, they, and, and but also the idea that, again, that they that they put together the future by in many ways by creative, creatively recombining the past, um, you know, is it, it, something that that really strikes me as interesting because, yeah, a, a lot of great artists do that. Like that's how a lot of great artistic movements happen. But, yeah, it's it's this this is an absolutely flabbergasting song. Like I love the coda. I love. I, I really, really do love that uh, bass line that you cited. Um, yeah, there's there's almost too many details to to name check here. It's it's just a masterpiece, Mike. It's a symphony. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, let's let's just summarize Blue Monday in a few minutes. That'll be easy. <laughs> this is not only my favorite New Order song, but it's it's a song I would actually consider perfect. And that's not to say that there can't be songs better than Blue Monday. I th- there, yeah. There's lots of songs I like more than Blue Monday. Like Procession by the Moody Blues. Exactly. That's that's <laughs> at the top of the list. But uh, it's it's perfect in the sense that if you were to change anything about it, any tiny little detail, it would become just that little bit worse. There's there's absolutely nothing I would want to change about it. Even the mistakes have become these iconic elements of the song, like uh, that that little uh, sequencer line that fades in at the beginning. That was that's famously uh, out of time with the rest of the song because mm-hmm. uh, I was, was wondering if I was just hearing something with that. I didn't know that. No, the yeah. sequencer was really hard to work with. Like the uh, New Order were pioneers; they had to program it in binary. So, uh, sorry, John, not everybody can program a sequencer yeah. in hexadecimal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it, yeah, even the even the mistakes ended up being these, these just part of what makes it a masterpiece. I even like the words to this one and New Order lyrics are always my least favorite aspect of any of their songs. Uh, it might not be about anything, but they're intriguing. They make you wonder. This song just hasn't aged 
day since it came out. And I think a big part of that is the sequencers and synths and things they were using. They were state of the art, but also, you know, from today's perspective, incredibly primitive. And it gives everything this very everything has this very rigid mechanical quality to it. And rather than try to fight against that, they just leaned all the way in. So every, you know, that synth based sound is so aggressive and just hits you right in the face. Uh, every every aspect of this song just comes right out at you. Pow. Um it's an absolute masterpiece. Uh, and I have, a, I have a little bit of housekeeping here. So, uh, well, for, first off, I guess we have to mention this. This song was covered in 1998 by industrial rock band Orgy. Yeah. How does it feel to treat me like you do when you laid your hands upon me and told me who you are? I found yeah, Mike, it's it's funny what you said there about how Blue Monday, the the New Order version hasn't aged at all, whereas that one sounds like it's from the late 90s. Yeah, that's that's the type of song I hear. And I just imagine the, the producers sitting behind the glass in the in the control room and, and going angstier, angstier, <laughs> turning up the angst fader. Yeah. And I have one last clip. So in 1988, the band was commissioned to do a version of this song advertising sun-kissed orange soda. And so Barney <laughs> Sumner had trouble singing the lyrics without laughing, and they ultimately decided to scrap it, giving up what was going to be a 350,000 pound payday. But around the same time, they were working on a remix of Blue Monday with Quincy Jones that was called Blue Monday 88. And that one gets played on the radio sometimes. And when they sent Quincy Jones the tapes with their tracks, they accidentally sent along the Sunkiss vocal take as well. And through an unknown chain of events, this ended up in Sunkiss' hands, and they briefly aired the commercial without New Order's blessing. And then New Order never saw a cent from it. But that means it's on YouTube, and I'm going to play it for you right now. <laughs> Does it feel Yeah, apparently there was like a technician in the studio holding up a sign that said 350,000 pounds as a way <laughs> as a way to like entice them into doing a take that they couldn't that they didn't laugh during, but it didn't work. They they were just like, we can't do this, but it eventually ended up on YouTube. So hey, there it is. It's so wrong and it's so wonderful. Wow. Well, the next track. That's a good job of, of tapping into my feelings on that. <laughs> this track is called Confusion. Excellent segue.
Confusion, also known as Confusion, was originally released in <laughs> August 1983. This is the second of two re-recordings produced specifically for the Substance Collection, and the original version has a much sparser, more breakdance-style groove. had already heavily drawn on New York club music as inspiration for tracks like Blue Monday and for Confusion they wanted to go straight to the source so they sought out New York club DJ and producer Arthur Baker. Baker was already a production legend by this point thanks to his work with Africa Bambata and the Soul Sonic Force on the single Planet Rock which is one of the definitive songs of early hip hop. New Order's typical modus operandi was to play long jams and build songs out of little bits and pieces that would work. And according to Peter Hook, when they showed up to Baker's studio, Baker didn't show up for nearly a day. So they spent the studio time recording hours and hours of tape for him to work with. And when Baker finally arrived, he was this larger than life figure who looked like a grizzly bear and took one look at the towers of material they'd recorded for him and said, right, okay, forget that. We'll go straight in the studio and write something there. So Baker had a very loose DIY kind of punk production style, and apparently he would just crank all the levels up to maximum and then let his engineer sort everything out, which is, you know, something I'm sure Mike loves. <laughs> and as a result, Confusion feels to me like the first single by, by New Order that was intended from the get-go to get people onto the dance floor. And I honestly don't have a preference between the original and the re-recording because either way, it's never been one of my favorite New Order singles, but it's certainly unique in their catalog. So something I've never been able to figure out is does this song feel to me like a letdown just because it comes after Blue Monday? Or is it actually like, you know, generally substandard for this collection? I, and I honestly can't tell because instinctually I feel like I like it, but I also feel like when I when I hit this point of the album, like I, I feel like the first four uh, tracks of this collection are like, you know, the first act of of a three act play and it's it's the curtain's gone down in in this incredible fashion and then we get to this track and I feel and I feel like this part is of the album is a little bit slow mm. uh, this in the next track and I and I generally can't tell how much it's this track's fault as a as a track because when I listen to it on its own I I think I enjoy it quite a bit but I also but I never think of it as one of the better ones on this set. I think it's kind of a slump, especially coming after Blue Monday. But the uh, the advantage of covering a singles collection is that the worst tracks are still pretty good. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, again, I like it. It's just it. But but it definitely feels like a massive dip. But again, I can't tell how much is this song and how much is Blue Monday. Mm-hmm. Mike, what, what say you? I, I like this version of the song. OK, but I think the the original the original version is is really really cool, and it's, it's it sounds like breakdance music. Yeah, that uh, clip you played sounded really really fun. I think I would definitely like that one more than this one. Yeah, it has more. Uh, it has a better use of empty space in the mix for sure. Yeah, it's. I can. I get why it wasn't included here because it's eight minutes long. But uh, one thing I I prefer about it, th- the version on Substance has this very loud, obnoxious, clanging snare drum sound. 
that I believe I think it's from a Fairlight, mm-hmm. and I think it's uh, originally sampled from When the Levy Breaks. I think that was I think that was one of I the think stock. That's true, yeah, I think that was one of the stock samples that you could get with the Fairlight. Yeah, and, well, I guess one thing I should mention here is that like uh, Stephen Morris as drummer. So one thing I'm never really clear on in New Order is like when it's actually him performing or whether it's, it's like sample drums. But e- either way, like sometimes it is him like actually like physically performing, but sometimes he also like was the person who programmed the sequencer. So he was involved in the production of these songs pretty heavily. Yeah, I think on these songs, the song, the the big dance singles, you're not hearing him drumming so much. But mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, it's. For some reason, you know, I love the drum sound on when the levee breaks, but uh, when it's gone through a, a fair light and it's been, I don't know, downsampled or whatever, it, it ends up sounding more like the St. Anger snare. It's just kind of <laughs> it's it's just kind of by Metallica, we should say. Yes. Yeah. If you're not familiar with that masterpiece, um, it's, it's just kind of like that album. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. <laughs> I'm probably contrarian on it, but yeah. anyway, go on. There, there are aspects of it I kind of like, honestly, but um, it's it just kind of clatters the song up. And it's just th- this version doesn't have that cool New York breakdance vibe that the original has. So, uh, you know, still still a good song. Won't rag on it too much, but yeah, yeah definitely this, this one is, of the lesser songs on here. But yeah, yeah. it's there's there's going to be there's a recurring theme on this episode called versions that Mike likes better. And this is episode (laughs) two. All right. If we've got nothing else here, let's move on to the next track. This is called Thieves Like Us. Love, also known as Thieves Like Us, was originally released in April 1984. The the title comes from a piece of graffiti that Arthur Baker saw on a way to the studio during the confusion sessions. And it's also the name of a 1937 novel by Edward Anderson that director Robert Altman adapted into a feature film in 1974. If you haven't noticed by now, New Order's song titles almost never appear in their lyrics because they were bookworms who liked to hide brainy literary references in the names of their songs. So from Power, Corruption, and Lies alone, you have Ultraviolence, which is a nod to A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess and the Stanley Kubrick film of the same name. And Leave Me Alone, which is from Tender is the Night by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And even the album title is a reference to a review quote from the Daily Telegraph on the back of George Orwell's 1984 that described the novel as, quote, a startling tale of power, corruption, and lies. 
all of which is very pretentious. And I'm sure factory records hated that it made it more difficult for fans to call radio stations to request their songs. But it also added a certain mystique to the band. I have to admit, can you play that song? That's like rah, ta, 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 ta. Hey, <laughs> yeah, it made it hard for people to like shout out the names of their songs at concerts. I bet. So I, I bet that was a reason they did that as well. <laughs> so thieves like us is a very sequencer centric song. So I mostly wanted to use this track as an opportunity to, to give a shout out to Jillian Gilbert. So I don't know whether she specifically programmed the sequencers on this song, uh, because I, I think that like every band member had a hand in that at, at some point. But in the early days of New Order, the keyboard arrangements that the band came up with required more tracks than their sequencers could handle. So Gilbert had to learn how to replicate those parts herself and effectively become a human sequencer, which is no mean feat. And I didn't mention this earlier, but Gilbert was Stephen Morris's girlfriend when she joined the band, and they're still married to this day. And this has led to a lot of sexist accusations of nepotism, including from Peter Hook, who is just very dismissive about Gilbert's contributions to the band in his memoir, Substance, which I read for this episode. But she's a key figure to the New Order sound. Like She's the keyboardist in a primarily synth-driven band after all. And I just didn't want to let this episode end without acknowledging the significance of her contributions. Yeah. As for Thieves Like Us, it, it's okay. It's Peter Hook's favorite New Order song, apparently. And uh, huh. I mean, it's, it's somewhere in the middle for me, but it's just never really been much of a standout on the compilation. Yeah, it's never been one of my favorites, but I also, every time I hear it, I like it more than I think I do. It's, it's one that definitely had to grow on me. This is one that, um, when I first heard it, I mean, I first heard substance, you know, I must have been in my late teens, early 20s. And it was a, a period when, you know, the way I would process new music was I would hear the first 30 seconds and then go crap and skip to the next one. Um, and this one was just a little too it was a little too fluffy. It sounds it sounds like something out of a John Hughes movie because it is. Yeah, um, it was it was literally used in Pretty in Pink. But yeah, uh, more on that later. <laughs> yes. It's it, it has a really nice build to it. And I really like the way uh, I really like how uh, Sumner's vocal in the chorus. He just really gets into it. It's very it's unusually impassioned for him. Sometimes he can just sound like he's, you know, singing what's on the page. But yeah, this this is a it's a, it's a good vocal performance. Very nice keyboard arrangement. Uh, lots. They, they just get layered so much by the time, you know, the song hits its peak. Yeah, I think I think it's very well put together. It just has never excited me all that much. Yeah, I will say there is a really nice like progression and build to the melody. Like, I, I mean, you, you won't get this from the clip that we play, but there's about two minutes of build before it gets to the rest of the song. And it's not like a bunch of like, you know, remix nonsense. It's all it all makes sense. It all like leads up to the melody. And I think it does a really good job with that. Yeah. So, Mike, I feel about the same with the song as you do, but I'll in a way, almost for an opposite reason. Because hmm. in my mind, I always remember this one as one of, I, I think of this one as one of the album highlights. And then I actually get into listening to it. It's like, oh no, this has moments, a lot, and maybe several moments that I really, really like. But there's also just long stretches of, um, <laughs> and, then it's, and then it's like, oh, he's, he, he's seen the, the chorus really well. There's, there's there's some nice synth builds here and there that I really get into, but then, you know, when I'm done with it, you know, then I say okay, let's move on. And then when I look at the the, the track listing on the back, it's like oh yeah, these like us, oh, that's one of the really good ones. And then the cycle just kind of goes it goes <laughs> an endless loop from there. Yeah, it makes sense. All right, so if we've got nothing left here. Let's move on to another fireworks factory. 
All right. Track seven. This is The Perfect Kiss. Fireworks Factory 123. Yes. Where are these numbers coming from? They're the catalog numbers. Oh. and have some fun also known as the perfect kiss is the first song on substance that appears on a new order studio album originally showing up on their 1985 album low life in a different version i mentioned earlier that blue monday may be my pick for the greatest song i've ever heard but the perfect kiss is my personal favorite new order song so bernard sumner is generally a capable vocalist as we've said but not really a great frontman. but this might be his single greatest vocal performance he sounds a bullion desperate and excited all at once and i love his growl on let's go out and have some fun which is just an endearing little touch of personality that i i honestly wish he would have allowed onto more new order songs and the music might be the greatest example of that balance between industrial and pastoral that i talked about during temptation like the song sounds like you're on a futuristic bullet train charging through a field of flowers in the spring mist as the sun rises. It's beautiful. And I was also listening to it a lot around when I first got together with my wife. So it's a very special song to me on a personal level. Aw. So this song also represents a major step forward for New Order on a technological level. So I've hesitated to talk too much about their gear so far because I'm just not knowledgeable about that kind of thing. And when I look at the list of all of their equipment with all of the X's and numbers and hyphens and stuff, I know that if I talk for too long, I'll just end up putting my foot in my mouth. But I know for a fact that The Perfect Kiss features two innovations. The first is Sempty Time Code, which is a clock developed by the Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers. Which stands for Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers. That enabled recording artists to go back and overdub drum machines and sequencers to the tape at any time, which was an enormous time saver. And the other innovation is the Musical Instrument Digital Interface, or MIDI, which we all know from the olden days before MP3s. Like, I I had a MIDI of Ironic by Alanis Morissette that I listened to all the time. (laughs) I had so many Pink Floyd MIDIs. That was actually the first way that I heard Ironic, like, without lyrics, which is interesting. So MIDI put all of the individual instruments in a song into a simple, easily switchable interface, which allowed artists to move things around and experiment with different sounds more easily. So the band deployed this new tech really well on The Perfect Kiss, and it helped make it the intricate pop symphony it is. I love this song so much. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. It's it's just just great. Just it's just this just this warm assault of uh, of sound. Just like I feel like I'm enveloped in just the just these washes of synth tones all around me. And I just like want to just snuggle in them, just like wrap them all around me. Um, I love the coda. I love the, the hook bass lines that pop up in them. 
Um, there's it just gives a, a feeling of an anthemic sweep to it that wouldn't be there if they you know they just like faded out after the the regular song portion. I love that coda too when it when it all comes like rushing in. It's it's this like big rush of drama and emotion that crushes yes. me every time. Yeah. This is my favorite New Order song as well. Um, again, like there, there's there's like two wolves fighting in me of like which, <laughs> which should be the best and which is which is my favorite. Um, to me, perf- the perfect kiss is a perfect song. And I, again, I, I don't know necessarily like what my criteria is for saying like which songs do I like are a perfect song. But just instinctually, like I feel like this falls in the list. Oh, this is a wonderful song. And uh, the version on Low Life is you know it's fine but it's about half the length of the version here and it just it kind of feels like a commercial for this for the the full version yeah it's the mix is kind of flat it's got it's like there's a layer of gauze over it and so much of what's great about the perfect kiss isn't necessarily the song it's even though the, the song itself is very good, it's the, the structure that they've built around it that, that makes it this, this sort of little journey that it takes you on. I especially like that that sequencer that pops up in the beginning that makes me feel like I'm in a Mario game or something. New Order were really, really good at 12-inch singles because, like, 12-inch remixes, like, before New Order came along, well, they didn't personally single-handedly change this, but, like, a lot of 12-inch singles from this era were really just, like, the song, like, artlessly stretched to, like, you know, eight or nine minutes long. And New Order, like, put in a lot of work to, like, put in, make sure that there was a lot a lot of, like, cool variation. Like, I do think it's funny that for all the parts of the song that they chopped out of the album version that I think are so important... They made sure to leave the frogs in. It was like that was that's non-negotiable. The frogs stay in. Oh, the the, the lyrics to this one are interesting. Um, people have speculated a lot about, you know, pretending not to see his gun. I said, let's go out and have some fun. People have speculated that that's like a reference to, to Ian Curtis and everything. Uh, really, it's from from what I've read, it's it's meant completely literally like he was mm-hmm. over at a friend's house. And, you know, I've I've been in situations like this where you're just you're hanging out with some people. Everybody's feeling all right. And then somebody just decides to take out his new West German police gun and it's it's not loaded or anything. He's not being careless with it. It just kind of kills the vibe. And your first instinct is to say, ah, neat, let's go somewhere else. 
Yeah. There's this movie from 2013 called A Most Violent Year with uh, Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain. And one of the recurring themes in the movie is like how terrifying it is just to be around a gun, which is something you don't see in a lot of movies. So I definitely get what you're saying there. Yeah. On the other hand, I, I really don't need to hear about Bernard Sumner's pleasure zone. Please don't say that. All right. So if we have to leave this wonderful song, let's move on. Next track is called Subculture. also known as Subculture, was originally released as the second and final single from the Low Life album. And the album version is a much colder, darker, more sedate affair than the version we just heard. The Substance version is a remix by John Roby, who collaborated with Arthur Baker and actually performed most of the live instrumentation on Africa Bambata's aforementioned Planet Rock. Roby's remix is much more aimed at the club scene, with female backing vocals adding accents to nearly every twist and turn in the melody. And I know for a fact that Mike prefers the original version, and Peter Hook agrees with you, Mike, though his opinion may be colored somewhat by an incident at the Hacienda where John Roby shoved a mushroom pastry in his face. And that'd do it. Yeah. So I acknowledge that the version on Substance is a little bit extra, but I personally prefer it because it reminds me of the Pet Shop Boys. And the album version is solid too, but uh, I, I guess for me, uh, Bernard Sumner's vocal delivery kind of wrecks it. It's not uncommon for vocalists and synth music to sound cold and emotionless, but on this song, Sumner just sounds bored and distracted. But it's still not a bad song in either version, and Low Life is a really great album that's worth your time. The version of this song on Low Life is one of my favorite New Order songs. And oh, cool. I, I'm hesitant to say that I hate this version, but I really <laughs> do not like it. It's sort of like, I don't think Sumner sounds bored and distracted on that version. I think he just sounds sullen, which I think suits the song. 
And that version yeah. is sort of like it's like it's commiserating with me as I'm listening to the song on headphones on public transit and feeling alienated. And the substance version is like somebody coming up to me and saying, you will now express your feelings of alienation through the medium of dance. Five, six, seven, eight. <laughs> and I don't want to. I, I want this person to go away. This I just I don't like the arrangement of this at all. Uh, first of all, I think Sumner sounds extremely awkward out in front of this posse of very assertive backing singers. There are all these extra little noises and things thrown into the mix that I, th I think just don't need to be there. I like how it's sort of Spartan and and empty. The original version sounds it has this very sort of nocturnal, empty street kind of vibe to it that I like mm -hmm. a lot. And uh, the, the thing that really kills this version for me, though, is that when the, when they get to the chorus, when they when they sing, uh, you, know, you won't even notice that you are alone, the the way the backing vocals are harmonizing, they're singing a, a major chord and the song underneath it's the, the instrumentation underneath is playing a, ma uh, a minor chord. And it's like they're trying to force a cadence that is not there. And it just sounds to my ear. It just clashes and sounds wrong. But that's that, that's it for me being mean to the substance version of subculture. Yeah, well, that's funny, Mike, because you were saying earlier, like I did at the, toward the beginning of the episode, how, how there's like just a key point where our like synth music tastes diverge. And I think that this is a really good case study in that, because like literally so, everything yeah. that you just listed there is something I love about the song. And that's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah, different. Different personalities are going to react to it differently. So you two have both thought a lot more about this song than I ever have. I've tried to to get a, a solid impression of this one. And I almost wonder if, if my issue with this one is, is largely the same issue that I have with confusion of, you know, it coming after just like just this towering masterpiece. I mean, my impression, my my gut instinct is that it is probably in the bottom two or three of of this collection um just if i were just like stack them all in order like there would come a point where i'm just like if i feel eh or worse towards the track it's just going to have to fall to the bottom just because of how much i like this this collection as a whole um i don't mind it as long as i'm not paying too close attention to it but it's it's definitely not one of the tracks in this collection that i ever seek out on its own yeah, and in regard to Bernard Sumner in particular, I, I admit that my perception of him might be colored by reading Peter Hook's autobiography. And I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna like read some headings out from the Bernard Sumner section of the index, such as announces wish to work with other people, coke consumption of, hook refuses to work with, hook's increasing annoyance with, hook's row with, and lack of cooperation exhibited by. <laughs> and that's only about half of them. Wow. Yeah, they uh, they did not get on very well by the end of the New Order story. Well, hopefully things resolve better for all of us. <laughs> all right, moving on. Track nine. It's called Shell Shock. Just don't shove a mushroom pastry in my face, John. Don't tell me how to live my life. <laughs>
Shellshock, also known as Oh, Shellshock, was originally released in March 1986, and New Order recorded it for the soundtrack to the John Hughes written film Pretty in Pink. And it also featured a snippet of Thieves Like Us, as well as the track Elegia from Low Life. So Shellshock marks a period where New Order was getting more exposure than ever before and going from underground to internationally renowned. The video for their single Touched by the Hand of God was directed by Catherine Bigelow of the Hurt Locker fame. And The Perfect Kiss was the subject of a 10 minute short film directed by Jonathan Demme, later of Silence of the Lambs fame. And he also featured the band on the soundtracks to his films Something Wild and Married to the Mob, which are both excellent films. One thing I didn't mention during my personal history, though, is that Substance is a great running album. It's about an hour long, and it starts slow with Ceremony, which is good for a warm-up. And then you reach Blue Monday right when you hit a steady groove. And then in the final stretch, you have back-to-back songs with the choruses. In the end, you will submit. It's got to hurt a little bit. And then it's never enough until your heart stops beating, just in time for the endorphins to kick in and give you a second wind. And just talking about it makes me want to actually start running again instead of watching, you know, prestige television on the exercise bike. But I don't really have much to say about Shellshock as a composition. It's a nice, like, it's another nice kind of Pet Shop Boys style dance song. It gets me going, but it's not one of my favorites on here. The funny thing about this one for me is that when the track starts, again, like, I don't know this, even after, you know, listening to this album pretty regularly for, for a while, I can't always immediately map, like, what what songs chorus maps to which songs introduction. So a lot of times when this one will come on, I'll, I'll hear the, the, the start of this track. I'm like, Oh, this is, this is one of the weaker ones because I won't remember what's coming later. And then it hit, and then eventually gets to the chorus. Like, Oh, that's right. I love this chorus. Like I, I like th- this chorus gets me every single time. And I, I'm just completely sucked into the song. So on the whole, you know, it's again, it's, it's, it's not, one of the most amazing tracks on here, but the the strength that it does have with the chorus and a handful of other things is is enough to make me really like it. Well, this would be the part where I talk about how much I how much more I like the album version, but there ain't one. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just going to have to look for the, the positives in this one. I, th- I think it's the mark of a good song that I can still enjoy it, even if it sounds like a like a very expensive keyboard threw up, which is kind of the feeling I I get from this one. No matter how they arrange it, that's a hell of a chorus. And yeah, I I think it's a a really well-written song, even if uh, I don't quite agree with all the creative decisions involved in making it. It's, it was at least good enough. I I forgot to mention this when we were talking about subculture, but uh, Peter Saville, uh, actually refused to design a cover for that single. If you look at if you look through uh, New Order discographies online, that's you'll you'll notice that's the only one that just comes in a plain, just a plain sleeve because he he didn't want to he didn't think it was worthy <laughs> of, of one of his designs. This one at least got a cover. 
I'm, gl- I'm, I'm, gl- so. I'm glad you found more room to crap on subculture some more of my <laughs> <laughs> i'm never done yeah i, I was kind of downplaying how much i like this song could just in anticipation because i thought i thought you guys both weren't gonna like it but i that that chorus is a hell of an earworm like uh, i mean this album has some like earwormy choruses but this is the one that i like walk around the house singing hmm. i can see that not at the top of my lungs but you know kind of <laughs> muttering to myself all right moving on Track 10, State of the Nation. You can walk or you can run. You don't have to be someone. I went on a summer cruise on an ocean front to lose. My brother said that he was dead. I saw his face and shook my head. State of the Nation, also known as was released in September 1986 as a standalone single accompanying their fourth album, Brotherhood. And I honestly have very little to offer on this song. Like Brotherhood is nobody's favorite New Order album, and this is my least favorite track on the collection. The lyrics are intended as social commentary, but in that kind of a bleak, vague New Order way, which means we have stanzas like, my brother said that he was dead. I saw his face and shook my head. Can you see where we can't be? We're losing our blood in the sea. Thanks, Barney. That makes me want to change the world. (laughs) So since this song isn't particularly inspiring, I'm going to take the opportunity to give a nod to the second LP of Substance, which features some B-sides, remixes, and a few tracks that stand up to anything on the first disc. First off, there's a pretty good darker remix of State of the Nation called Shame of the Nation that I like more than the version on the first disc. As for the standalone songs, I already mentioned Procession, and if I were given complete control over sequencing substance, I would probably swap out Everything's Gone Green for that song and swap out State of the Nation for the excellent B-side 1963, with the caveat that it's a very sunny-sounding song about domestic violence. It's so good. It was Mike, what do you think? Yeah, this one's fine. It's, uh, 
it's it's one of those songs that's just kind of there. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But this one's just kind of there for like six minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I start to notice um, I'm actually with you that uh, Shame of the Nation is the better version. And I I'm totally contradicting myself <laughs> because it's it's got the same superfluous backing vocals that uh, the, the substance version of Subculture had. But uh, I think it just works better as a as a more electronic dancey kind of song than as this sort of funk rock thing. I'm not all that convinced by this one. I think Shame of the Nation also has a better vocal. He sounds he sounds more into it on that one. Yeah, I don't have much to say about this one either. Like it, it's been interesting for me in, in going back and and really studying this this album to realize, oh, yeah, like, you know, for for all the highs that are in here, like there's some some pockets that, you know, I, I just kind of forget about where I just start treating things as as background sound for a really, really long time. And I totally forgot that these three tracks are, are, are sequenced after another. And again, like I like, you know, shell shock quite a bit because of the chorus, but at the same time, like this, this three track stretch is, is, you know, compared to some of the best stuff on here is, it's a bit of a drag for me. And I, I, I too would have swapped in 1963 uh, for this one again, I, I I don't know what have done would have done to flow per se, but whatever. It's it's a singles compilation. Um, so yeah, I, I again I I won't skip this one. I I really won't skip anything on here because I think that this this whole collection does work really well as a whole and greater than some of its parts. Even if some of the parts are you know are are amazing as some of them are are weaker, but yeah, this isn't one that I really think about much. And uh, with with regard to 1963, which I, I also love, the official story behind it is that it's not just about domestic violence. It's about JFK murdering Jackie so he can go off and marry Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's nuts. Well, shall we get to the third fireworks factory, John? Yes. Speaking of strange, odd, perhaps bizarre love triangles. That is a bizarre love triangle. <laughs> we have track 11. Fireworks Factory number three, Bizarre Love Triangle. Fireworks Factory 163.
Ah, this song makes me so happy. <laughs> so Every Time I See You Falling, also known as Bizarre Love Triangle, was originally released on the 1986 album Brotherhood. All right, team, it's time to go to remix school because there are three versions of this song. There actually there are probably more than three versions, but there are three primary ones. So the Brotherhood version sounds like a crummy first draft. Yeah, it's like they they came up with all these really cool parts and then couldn't figure out how to build an arrangement out of them. So they just turned everything up. So the version that gets played on the radio is a seven inch remix by Stephen Haig, who we'll talk about more in the next track. Finally, the version on Substance is a 12-inch remix by Shep Pettibone, who was renowned in the 80s for his remix work and is probably best known for co-producing Madonna's hit single Vogue and most of her album Erotica. So the Hague and Pettibone remixes of Bizarre Love Triangle feature a much sharper, punchier mix than the Brotherhood version, and a lot of that can be chalked up to the much more skillful deployment of the Fairlight CMI. So Mike talked about the Fairlight way back on his episode on Kate Bush because she used it extensively on her albums. And to recap, the Fairlight is an all-in-one synthesizer, sampler, and digital workstation that could really make a song sparkle in the right hands. But Mike, the, the Fairlight is on all three versions of this song, right? They're just it's just used much more skillfully on the other on the remixes. Yeah, I think all the synth parts you're hearing uh, come out of the Fairlight. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I've read, at least. Yeah, I really I don't want to put my foot in my mouth uh, talking about the, the synth gear that I really honestly know nothing about. I just know that Bizarre Love Triangle in general is a very Fairlight heavy song, and it's a pretty difficult synthesizer to use. Yeah. So the title Bizarre Love Triangle is probably the most debated title in New Order's catalog because not only does it never appear in the lyrics, the word love never even appears. And for a song that's supposedly about a love triangle, the lyrics seem focused on just one person. And I've seen this interpreted in some interesting ways. One is that it's about the dizziness and conflicting emotions of being madly in love, that when you're head over heels into someone, your mental state changes so much that you effectively become more than one person in a love triangle with yourself. And a darker interpretation that I've read is that it's about drug addiction, particularly the way that an addictive substance can serve as, you know, effectively as a third wheel in a relationship, which adds a chilling resonance to lines like shot right through like a bolt of blue. And it's no problem of mine, but it's a problem I find. Whatever it means, I think Bizarre Love Triangle is one of the great song titles in popular music. And honestly, there's a certain geometric quality to that main synth riff that accompanies it perfectly. Like it sounds like a triangle. And I could go on for hours about how much I love this song, so I'll probably just stop here. Blue Monday is my brain's favorite New Order song, and The Perfect Kiss is the one that's closest to my heart. But Bizarre Love Triangle feels like the band's gift to the world. Listening to it makes me so deliriously happy every single time. Yeah, I really like this one, too. Like, <laughs> Good. It, <laughs> yeah, well, well, I mean, you know, when I when I listen to Substance as a whole, and I'm trying to map it out in my mind... There was a bit where I was I was thinking, wait, am I sure that this this collection doesn't just have a massive dip in quality on the second half after 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 Perfect Kiss? And then I remember, oh, that's right. Bizarre Love Triangle is is tucked right there. Like the second half is going to be just fine. Um, You know, this is really a song that 
you know, it, it, it's hard for me to pick out all the individual elements that really make it stand out for me. But just to the extent that New Order would have any tracks like this, this is a track that I feel more than I necessarily think about. Like it's just one one that just just kind of worms its way into in, in, into into my gut, into my mind, into my ears. Like it, it's just an experience as much as anything else. Um, and it's it's just an incredible experience for me when I listen to it. This song is the opposite of the sub of the substance version of subculture. The the remix is one of the best <laughs> things they ever did. And the version on the album is crap. It's like they they came up with this really great song and had no idea how to how to make it work. And it took it took giving it over to Shep Pettibone to to kind of sculpt yeah. know, to, to carve everything away that wasn't bizarre love triangle. Because what's great about this version is is every little every little uh, bit of the arrangement, uh, you know, every little synth part and all the stuff they came up with, it all gets its one little moment to shine. It's given more of a structure that way. And it has all the, the different little parts for you to look forward to, like that little uh, that little staccato bit that, that flits between the speakers in the beginning. And there's there's a little vocoder breakdown near the end. I think the vocoder was there in the in the original, but it was just buried in the back. song is buried in the mix on the album version and this is yeah just... brotherhood is just not a great album because they made the weird decision to put like primarily rock tracks on side one and dance tracks on side two so yeah on each side it feels like a piece of new order is missing yeah and the whole album sounds like crap yeah they had when they made that album they had just acquired this some kind of new compressor that made everything really aggressive and in your face and they just decided to put that on everything. But yeah, Bizarre Love Triangle is fantastic. Highly recommended. Would listen to it again. Yeah, 13 out of 10. All right, so let's move on to the final track in this collection. This one is called True Faith. Some great Peter Hook right here. Yeah. The 
The Morning Sun, also known as True Faith, was released in July 1987 as the official single from the Substance Collection. It was produced by Stephen Haig, an American producer who also worked on the albums Please by the Pet Shop Boys and The Innocence by Erasure, which means that as far as I'm concerned, he achieved the triple crown of British synth pop of the 80s. Factory Records brought in Haig with the specific intent of breaking the band in the States, and it worked. This was their first U.S. Top 40 hit, reaching number 32, and they only managed to best that chart position with their 1993 single, Regret, which hit number 28. Anyway, so it's a really good song, but the circumstances of its creation were a sign of mission creep for New Order, who had gradually gone from a band with something to prove to more of a business venture. The band had previously written songs by jamming for hours and seizing on the interesting bits to expand into full compositions. And for true faith, they went into the studio with the intent of building a hit single from the ground up. And even though it's a very good, very enjoyable song, there's something very workmanlike about it. And New Order did still have one more classic, error-defining album in them, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes, but the band would otherwise go on to coast on the template of True Faith for the rest of their career. Like, your standard New Order song from this point forward sounds like True Faith, so in that sense, it's hard not to think of it as the beginning of the end. But if you throw away all of that baggage, I still really like it. I heard this one on the radio all the time as a teen, and I loved it every time. Yeah, I think this is a terrific song. I think it's a, a great way to end the album. The, the, the one-two punch of Bizarre Love Triangle and, and True Faith is just terrific. I agree that it's – you can tell it's much less experimental than a lot of what they were doing before. But for a song that was intended to be a big hit single, it's a really well-crafted hit single. There is a version of this song that I do prefer to this one just slightly. There's a, a Shep Pettibone remix of this one. And our man, our man, it, it's it's about nine minutes long. So I get why it's not on here. It's he he took it and just he streamlined it and punched it up just a little bit just to just to make it pop that much more. Um, it's not anywhere near as dramatic an improvement as the bizarre love triangle remix was, but it's, I, there's a lot about it that I, I like about it. The, uh, especially there's, they go into the, at the end, they go into this very kind of, uh, Crawford-y sort of jam it reminds me of the end of neon lights or something like that. I don't have too much to add. I think it's it's really good, and I think it makes an excellent closer. It's well considered on their part to make a what's ostensibly a, a singles compilation, you know, flow like an album in many ways, like like ceremony acting as a nearly ideal opener. And this feels like a great closer. Like I can't, I really can't imagine this this collection ending with anything else. Like it's it's got a great send off chorus for me and um yeah i i whenever i listen to this whether in the context of the album or not i i come away really impressed with it 
Um, again, I don't know, except for the album that, that came after this, like I don't know New Order's uh, catalog beyond here that well. So I can't, again, I can't speak that much to, to how much this uh, served as a template for things to come. But, you know, it's it's a good template. And I think we are done. We are. That was New Order from 1981 to 1987. Now for disc two, right? <laughs> Rich, what are your final thoughts about this? Well, I've enjoyed talking about a singles collection this time around because, well, to use the lingo of academia, our episodes are usually like cross-sectional studies, which focusing on a single moment in time. Whereas this is what's called a longitudinal study, which focuses on how the test subjects change over a long period. And what I've learned doing the research for this episode and learning more about these songs and the people who made them is that during this six year span, New Order was a mess. They had no idea what they were doing. They were constantly in debt. They were wasted all the time on a variety of substances, fittingly enough. And somehow along the way, they changed the face of dance music. And as 2022 opens and we enter the, the third year of this blasted global pandemic, I think we're all feeling pretty lost and directionless right now. And to me, substance is strangely inspirational, like a testament to how people can achieve greatness, even when they're just flailing in the dark for ideas. I like that. Mike? You know, there's no, there's no perfect new order compilation out there and at this point i i don't know if there's ever going to be because you know what's what's the point you can just make a playlist of your perfect version but uh you know new order were also you know like rich just said they were a mess they're they were a confusing frustrating band and this might be in places a confusing frustrating compilation but for better or worse, this is uh, an accurate picture of of what New Order did. Mm -hmm. If you don't like all of it, there's a good chunk of it that you just need. If you like electronic music at all. You know, if if current me had somehow been able to go back in time and tell college me <laughs> that I would be as into this album uh, as I am now, um, you know, College Me would have been very confused for a lot of reasons, not least of which would have been, who are you again? <laughs> this is one of the, the 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 good things about getting older and gaining more exposure to things. Um, again, like, you know, the, the, the kind of music that this ultimately inspired, again, is not exactly in my wheelhouse. But listening to Substance is, you know, I, I feel like I'm listening to the specific quality, the, the quality of the specific tracks aside, as high as it may be, like, I feel like I'm listening to the future get invented. And it's really, it's just really inspiring to listen to this. Um, and, you know, it's, it's something that, that, that finds its way into my rotation frequently. And I'm, you know, in this form, in, in other forms, which I'll get to in a second. And, yeah, New Order is is a frustrated band. Again, I don't I don't like any of their proper albums quite as much as I like this. Um, but you know, they're they're absolutely a worthwhile listen. And this is a worthwhile compilation. So with that, Rich, somebody has listened to Substance. They're interested in hearing more New Order. 
where would you say that they should go to next? Well, so I mentioned that after Substance, New Order still had one more classic album in the chamber. And in 1988, the band traveled to the Mediterranean island of Ibiza, where they dropped tons of ecstasy and listened to a lot of Balearic beat and Acid House club music. And what came out of their drug-addled brains was the 1989 album Technique, which sounds like someone took the New Order sound and like transmogrified it with a glow stick or something. It was a landmark album in the Manchester dance scene of the late 80s and early 90s, centered around the Hacienda Club. And even though most of the music that came out of this scene is utterly unappealing to me and ultimately resulted in the demise of Factory Records. Regardless, Technique is a fantastic album from start to finish and the last great work the band ever released. should also definitely hear their 1983 album Power, Corruption, and Lies, which came out around the same time as Blue Monday, but doesn't overlap at all with Substance. This is where they really went whole hog with the synthesizers and sequencers, and it's also where New Order really started to sound comfortable in their own skin as a distinct entity from Joy Division. Thought that never changes remains a stupid lie. It's never been quite the same. No hearing or breathing. mad because i just found out uh about an hour before we started recording that uh the what i'm about to recommend isn't in print anymore and it's not even on spotify but uh (laughs) that said that said my uh my favorite my personal favorite new order release is the deluxe two disc collector's edition of their debut album movement because i mean Movement itself is is an interesting album. You, you hear them still basically sounding like Joy Division, but kind of moving on from there. But disc two of that edition is where it really starts to get fun because you get both versions of Ceremony. You get both uh, original versions of uh, of Temptation. You get Procession. You get to hear New Order sounding like they had and like they were going to pretty soon.
So as for me, I want to give uh, some shine to a project uh, from the last dozen years or so called Peter Hook and the Light. Uh, Peter Hook and the Light is a band started by Peter Hook uh, around 2010. And what they do is they go around basically playing full albums of Joy Division and New Order albums, and sometimes they record them. Um, I have uh, a good handful of these recordings that he's put together, and they're they're quite enjoyable. But my favorite of them, uh, by a good distance, is one from uh, 2016 uh, called Substance, the albums of Joy Division and New Order. They play the entirety of the New Order uh, of the of the first disc that we covered here of New Order Substance, and they play the entirety of Joy Division's album of the same name. They throw in a bunch of bonus tracks from each. It's set up as an extremely entertaining and and well sequenced show, and it's one that I come back to a lot uh, as an alternative uh, to this one. So yeah, Peter Hook and the Light. You know, in, in a certain sense, it's it's just a nostalgic a nostalgia act but it's it's one of the best uh touring nostalgia acts out there uh, along these lines for my for my money and i haven't listened to this yet but uh, what you said is that peter hook is a surprisingly charismatic frontman. Right? he really is like i was kind of surprised at uh, how much i just enjoy hearing him talk as a mm-hmm. person well, apparently they auditioned like several potential frontmen for the for it, but they were all scared of being seen like as a usurper, like say like the uh, equivalent to like Todd Rundgren being in the new cars. And right. then they were just eventually Peter Hook just decided to step up and do it himself. And yeah, apparently yeah. he's taken some guff from the other band members for this project, yes. but they're they're his songs, whatever. Let him make some money. Yeah. Exactly. with that looks like we are finished up next mike will be winding up our winter of electronic music by showing us how to be the operator of our brand new pocket calculators Beep, boop. the 1981 album computer world by kraftwerk eins zwei drei vier roll credits Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Substance and other albums by New Order at your local record store or directly from the band at store.neworder.com. You can also buy or stream it at the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. Visit our website, discordpaw.com, for show notes and a Spotify playlist featuring this album and every song we clipped in this episode. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Discord Pod, where we post news, updates, and memes about prog rock. Visit my music review archive at johnmcferrinmusicreviews.org, featuring a page on Joy Division. As always, fair warning, I rate albums in hexadecimal. Editing and production is by Rich, with a production assist from Mike on the introduction and the theme song. Thanks, Mike. See you next album, and keep as cool as you can.